Today we're going to be looking at uh, Philippians chapter 1, and uh, next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll be in chapter 2 of the book of Philippians, and so I guess the best title would simply be Observations from the book of Philippians, Uh, but we'll wait and see how the Lord takes us. Uh, It is our privilege to be studying the very Word of God, that which is inspired infallible and inerrant. In Nehemiah chapter 8, when Ezra opened the book of the law, the scriptures to read, the people stood out of respect and reverence for the author of scripture. Please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. I'm beginning with what we in the English call verse 19. Please understand when the scriptures were penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there were no, hey, this is verse 19, this is verse 20. Uh, That came hundreds of years later for our benefit. But tragically, sometimes that breaks apart phrases. I'm beginning at that paragraph which says, yes, and I will rejoice. And then we get the number. So don't worry about the number Let's look at the scripture. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Please be seated. As we open the book of Philippians, the, uh, the, the thing that you have to realize is that in a very real sense, the entire book is a thank you letter. Uh, Paul was in prison Uh, He had started the church at Philippi in his second missionary journey years before, uh, and they had uh, put together a gift. We don't know the significance of the amount or anything like that, but they had sent that to Paul 
to encourage him in his uh, imprisonment. And he's writing back to them uh, and, and basically thanking them for that gift, for that help that they've given to him in this time of suffering. Now, what we're going to look at today is uh, the significance of living a life worthy uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are going to be two foundation points and then the call. Now, the first foundation point, let's back up a little bit and look at chapter 1 where Paul talks about something that is extremely significant as we wrestle with what it means to live uh, to, to, oh, and, and, and the only thing I can think of is to live in the crap of this earth. To look in a mirror and, and to see uh, how unworthy we are to see the brokenness in our lives, uh, the, the wretchedness of the things to do that, that we do, and simply wonder why in the world would Jesus do this for us? Well, as Paul begins, he talks about his thankfulness in his prayer. And this is the thing I want you to see in verse 6 as we begin. This would be the first foundation point. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began the good work in you will what? He who began the good work in you will bring it to the day of completion. In other words, as Paul is writing to these dear folks in Philippi, folks that he had known, folks that he'd been been involved with. You remember, he planted this church. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. He planted this church. He knew these people. He was confident of their relationship with the Lord. And in the spite of all the struggles that we go through, in spite of all of the frustrations that we go through, in, 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 in spite of all of that, he says that we have a wonderful confidence in the midst of the journey in which we face Three enemies. Dr. Barnhouse at 10th Pres in Philadelphia years ago preached an outstanding sermon on the enemies of the Christian, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We live in the midst of a world that's trying to destroy who we are. We live in the midst of the world that is trying to undermine what we stand for. We live in a world that is anti-Christian, and this world is seeking to do whatever they can to, 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 to destroy us. That would be the world, you know, those outside of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. They're the enemy. But, by God's grace, and I'm going to talk about this in a little bit, maybe the enemy can become part of the army. We're called to evangelize, are we not? But we live in the midst of that. And then the second great enemy is the flesh. This is what Paul talks about in terms of the old man. You know, it would have been really neat if when the Lord converted us, 
He took all the sin out of our bodies. Wouldn't that have been neat? But is that what happened? No. The old man is still there, brothers and sisters. And we battle that old man every day, every moment. And part of the challenge as believers is that as we grow in Jesus, that, 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 that we're able to slay that old man so that the new man becomes more and more dominant in the life of a believer. The guy who used to cuss like a sailor as he grows in Jesus. When that hammer hits the thumb, different things come out. That's part of conquering the flesh, you see. And, and, and oh, the, the, the impact that that old man has on us. And then the third great enemy of the believer in this journey upon which the Lord has called us is, of course, the devil who can't make us do anything. Please understand that. But boy, he can make it awfully seductive. He can make it awfully tempting. And he can take the uh, ability that we have to rationalize things out and pretty much justify whatever we want to do. The world, the flesh, and the devil, these are the challenges that we face. And yet the beauty of what Paul says here, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to you to completion. You know why? Because we didn't save ourselves. As you wrestle with the Scripture, the first thing you've got to realize is God in His grace chose for Himself a people. Read Ephesians 2. Read Ephesians 4. God, for no other reason than He chose some to make His began that good work. The doctrine of election. Why did He choose some and not others? I don't know. But by God's grace, I know that He chose me. And that's the beauty. The beauty of a relationship with Christ. God chose us. Secondly, Christ died for us. There's not a single thing I can do to add to my merit. There's not a single thing to do that, that, that I can do to justify my salvation. I am saved because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ alone. He lived that perfect life that is imputed to me so that when we, we, as God looks at us, He looks at us through Jesus Christ and he, and, and he sees us washed in the blood. He sees us cleansed. He sees us as righteous, not because of what I've done, or because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. I'm chosen by God. Christ's finished work earned that salvation for me. In, book of, in fact, in the book of Colossians, Paul actually uses the word qualified. You know, if, if this is God's standard, this is where I am, and Christ's work qualified me. He 
brought me up. Chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, Christ's finished work. And then that finished work, oh, by, by the way, a one-time event, earned my salvation. And then in my own or your own personal time, God applied that work through the work of the Holy Spirit. John 3, Nicodemus comes. How do I be born again? Ah, the Spirit. The Spirit applies that finished work. So we are saved by God's having chosen us, Christ having redeemed us, and the Holy Spirit having applied that. And that's when we see with eyes opened and hearts changed the fact that I am a sinner and that I need Jesus Christ. And when I flee to the cross and the, oh, the beauty of Pilgrim's Progress, when he flees to the cross and he looks on the cross, that heavy burden on his back just falls off. That's the beauty of the Gospel. And that's the first foundation point. He who began the good work will bring it to completion. Now, please understand, that doesn't mean that I just, hey, let go and let God. He did it all. No. Part of our response is we love Him. And because we love Him, as Jesus said, if you love me, you will do my commandments. So there is a life in response to the gospel that is to be lived. But there again... That's where the journey comes into play and that's where the crap comes into play. That's when we stumble and we fall and we get frustrated, but brothers and sisters never lose that sense of confidence because he who began that good work in you will bring it to the day of completion. The second foundation point, Paul makes the statement as he's wrestling with his, his own life. You know, he's talking about, uh, I'm wrestling with whether I, uh, I want to remain or whether I want to go to be with the Lord. You know, but he was an older man at this point in time, and we don't know all of the physical sufferings that he had had, but he was ready to be with Jesus. Okay? You remember that in the reading? He said, Man, I, just, I don't I'm not sure what to do. You know, it's so much better to be here, but I think the Lord wants me to stay here and all this kind of stuff. Well, we have to remember that as we wrestle with this phrase, to live as Christ and to die as gain, first of all, let me start with the back part of it, obviously death is gain. For the believer, that is the great reward. My journey is over. And the Lord has called me home. Or as Stonewall Jackson said, let me cross over the river and rest on the other side. That's the reward for the believer to know that death is not an end. What's interesting, uh, as you wrestle through the New Testament, whenever it talks about the death of a believer, do you know what word is used? Lazarus is asleep. Not Lazarus is dead. So the picture you see of something that is temporary, something that you go through until 
You wake up in the arms of Jesus. Yes. And even as we wrestle with what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, now we see through the glass darkly, there'll come a time when we'll see, see it clearly. You know, we, we have no concept of what heaven is as human beings who are not infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Uh, we can only understand things based upon concepts that we've experienced or had had some, some kind of contact with. And, and uh, I, I really don't care much about that movie, but... Uh, uh, we don't know anything about heaven until we get there. But we know that Jesus is there. And so we'll be with Jesus. And that's gain. That's what Paul's talking about. Man, I'm ready to be with my Lord. I am tired of this fleshly body. I am tired of the labor through which we're going through here. In fact, I'm tired of getting beaten up and stoned and, and all these things. I'm ready to be with Jesus. But until that time, until that time, we live a life here. And Paul says, to live is Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul talks about Christ's preeminence in all things, that he is Lord of all of life. In the third chapter, Paul talks about whatever you do or say or whatever you do, do all in the name of Jesus Christ. To live as Christ, brothers and sisters, means that my total life is revolutionized. No longer is Jim Meisner sitting on the throne, but Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne and my role is to be in obedience to the king who rules over me. Living in obedience to the king who rules over me means that I want to live a life that manifests my loyalty to this great king. A king who loved me enough, by the way, that he died for me. And that relationship in which I'm now living in obedience to that great and glorious king is going to change my life radically. And that should be what happens in the life of everyone who professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that as he is king of my life, as he is lord of all that I do, that impacts my business practices, that impacts my family situation, that Im should impact the way we drive. Because every aspect of our lives is lived under the reign of this great king. And I am obligated because I love him to want to live in a manner that he wants me to live. I find that out through the scriptures. As I spend time in the word, I understand what he wants me to be and what he wants me to do. And so my life becomes one of obedience to this great king. That's what Paul's saying when he says to live is Christ. He said, oh, what a, what a better way to live than to live under this, uh, this relationship. What an exciting way to, to, to go through this journey on earth than to know that I'm doing it with 
Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ is impacting all that I do. And that my life is being changed because of His rule and because of His reign. So to live is Christ. Man, what a blessing! But to also know that at the end of this journey, the blessing is greater. That's part of the reward. I, I once heard a speaker, Joel Niederhood, you'll remember that name, who, great champion of Christian schools in the Christian Reformed Church. He was their radio broadcaster for years, one of the greatest preachers I've ever heard. And he was talking about Christian education and the challenge of Christian education. And uh, uh, he was saying, Christian education is tough. But you have all eternity to rest. The Christian life is tough. Anybody who believes it's easy to be a Christian, I'm not sure they even know Jesus in the first place. Christian life is tough, brothers and sisters. But always remember and never lose sight that we have all eternity to rest. To rest with Jesus. To live as Christ. To die as gain. That's the second foundation point. And that brings us to Paul's exhortation to the people to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, let's think about the church at Philippi for a minute. Church at Philippi was founded in Paul's second missionary journey. He and Silas, now remember his, Paul's first partner was Barnabas, and he and Barnabas got in an argument over Mark. Mark was Barnabas's, Barnabas's cousin, had traveled with them on the first missionary journey, uh, but couldn't take it. Maybe he was a mama's boy, who knows. Couldn't take it, went home. And so... Paul and Barnabas continue on that first missionary journey. God blesses them. Churches are established. Congregations are flourishing. Years later, Paul and Barnabas decide, hey, let's check on these churches that we've established. Let's go back around and see, see how they're doing. Well, guess who wants to go? I want to go, says Mark. Paul says, no way. Barnabas says yes. So they end up dividing. Paul takes... Silas, Barnabas takes Mark. They go to Cyprus, which was Barnabas' home. It's interesting, at the end of 2 Timothy, uh, the last letter that uh, Paul wrote, uh, he writes, send Mark to me, for he is very useful. See, guys, people do change. Folks do grow up. So don't ever lose sight of that. This, this Mark that is mentioned is also the Mark who wrote the second gospel account as he transcribed Peter's discussion of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul and Silas go on this second missionary journey, worked their way through Asia Minor, what we today call Turkey, crossed over, came down into Macedonia to come to Philippi. Hadn't been to Philippi before. Of course, this Philippi was named after King Philip, if you know your Greek history, the father of Alexander the Great. In Philippi, they 
spend a couple of days there, and so they go to the synagogue on Saturday because there was a Jewish community there. Uh, That was their common practice. They would go there, and that's where they would begin to share the gospel with people. And in their preaching, we find that Lydia is converted. If if you got an opportunity this afternoon, turn to Acts 16. This is where the account is found. And through the preaching of the gospel, Lydia is converted. Now that's interesting, you know, as the the word is preached again. uh, You know, this is God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word. We're told in in, uh, 1 Peter uh, that this is what causes us to be born again. That's where Peter makes the statement, quoting from Isaiah, all flower is like grass, the flower of grass fails, but the word of the God, the, the word of our Lord will never fail, will abide forever. I kind of messed that up. Let me look at get it exact for you, sorry. We need to understand that scripture never changes. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Okay, And Peter goes on to say, and this is the word that was preached to you. So it's the word that brings about conversion. Uh, so Lydia is converted. Uh, they continue on. Uh, there's a little... A demon-possessed gal who's harassing Paul, and Paul heals her. Uh, The folks get all bent out of shape over that. They uh, beat Paul up and and, uh, uh, beat Silas up, and they get him imprisoned. And when they're imprisoned, they're grumbling and griping and complaining. Is that right? No. These men had committed their lives to Jesus Christ. These men knew that as they traveled in the hands of God, that he was with them every step of the way. They knew that their God was in control of all things. So here in prison, they're singing and praising God and praying. I can only imagine how many times that jailer had heard that before. Hours go by that night, there's an earthquake and the Doors on each of the cells fall open. The jailer comes and he finds out, oh, my prisoners are gone. And in those days, the jailer was responsible for each of the prisoners. And he, was, he knew that, that, that his life was forfeit. And he pulled out his sword. He was about to plunge his body upon it. And Paul cries out and says, hey, we're, st- we're still here. Again, my mind goes, I bet you he'd never seen that happen before talking about the jailer. Here were two men who were committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here were two men whose lives were totally different than everybody else around them because of their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Here were two men who obviously trusted in something greater than any Roman God of all the multitude of gods that they had. Here were two men who were very different. And when the jailer sees that Paul and Silas were still there, his response, brothers and sisters, was, I want what you have! That's modern day vernacular for what he said. But he wanted to know how to be saved. Why? Guys, he looked at those two men. 
And those men were different in the midst of, uh, 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 of, of trial. The comfort, the peace, the security that these men had. And he wanted it. And as the story goes on, that's when Paul and Silas went to his home and we see, we see a whole household baptism as, as they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Guys, that's how the church in Philippi started. That's how Jesus Christ grows His church. I'm not a big program guy. So I'm not really committed to all these things that come down the pike that may seem to work for a while. And I, I, I understand the sincerity behind them and I understand the intent and all that kind of stuff. But brothers and sisters, the thing to me that I believe is what impacts a community and what grows a church is the life of each individual believer. And as we live our lives in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, that's going to set us apart from everybody else around us. That's what's going to make a witness, a testimony, vibrant and exciting and real. And sometimes we complain about, God, why do you make my life so tough? Just let me win the lottery and have me. Oh, well, well, when do people see the reality of Jesus Christ in our lives? When everything's going great? Listen, the vibrancy of your testimony is demonstrated more when you go through pain and suffering than when everything is hunky-dory. Because that's when it's real. That's why James writes, Consider it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you go through various trials, knowing it is God who is growing you, molding and shaping you to be something that He wants you to be. I may have shared this with you before, but uh, since I'll be 67 in a couple of days, put up with it again if I did. Uh, there was a book written several years ago called The Gospel Blimp. And Joseph Bailey uh, was the author. It was kind of a tongue-in-cheek at evangelistic programs. You had a Sunday school class that was uh, meeting here in a home, and the next-door neighbor... Uh, the guy was cussing at his wife, kicking his kids. I mean, he was just a bad guy. Okay, and so the Sunday school class says, we got to save this guy. Well, let's have a blimp ministry. And this blimp would, would, would float over the city and it would play gospel music and you'd have a big sign on it, you know, say, Jesus saves. And, and, we'd, and, and we'd drop tracks so that uh, they could read about Jesus and all this kind of stuff, and they're going to be saved. And uh, they do that, you know, but the, the, the noise irritates everybody, and the, the sign on the side of the blimp, you know, just bugs people to death. 
and, and the, the, the tracks that they drop plugs up the plumbing and all this kind of messes up the sewer system. So it's a huge fiasco. And as we seem to find out, Christians always have a tough time working together and so the group that uh, you know, kind of fell apart. Okay. A couple of years later, uh, they, they, they decide to have kind of a reunion. So they come back together and, and, and you know, they're here at the barbecue and lo and behold, the guy was the neighbor is with them. So the fellow who thought of the blimp idea said, man, hey, great to have you. Was it the blimp? The guy said, no. Several months ago, my wife got seriously ill. This family took care of my kids. This family brought food. This family impacted me for Jesus Christ. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, brothers and sisters, means that the reality of Jesus Christ is demonstrated in our lives. I, I know we make mistakes. I know we deal with the rem, remnants of sin in our lives. I know that. But that's part of living in a real world but having Jesus with us in the process. And sometimes, because of our sinfulness and our, our, our selfishness and all, sometimes we have to tell folks, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Boy, that's, that's kind of a great testimony anyway. But God's call is for us, no matter the circumstances. No, no matter whether things are hunky-dory or things are hurting, that the reality of Jesus Christ is to be seen in our lives. Hey, that might be kind of exciting if we were thrown into prison. And we act like Paul and Silas. Who, just to make sure the point, they weren't thrown into prison because they'd done anything wrong, by the way. But it may come a time when, when, when we undergo persecution. And a, and a jailer hears us singing and praying. And wants to know what I have that he doesn't. That allows me to have that kind of life. But more often than not, it'll be maybe a neighbor who's hurting. Or a person that you share work with that's going through tough times. Who knows? But the call is to live our lives in a manner worthy of Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that means 
that folks around us who don't know Jesus should see something different. In John 13, when Jesus was dealing with his disciples in the upper room, and he says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. And by this, the world will know that you are mine. We understand the significance of a commandment. Jesus was not saying this is a request. You know, he's not saying, boy, it'd sure be nice if you guys did this. Now he's saying this is what you do. New commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. The word is agape, which means a sacrificial love that's demonstrated in actions. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. So he's the model. Just earlier that evening, he had washed the feet of his disciples. You remember? Yeah, he, the Lord of the universe, got a towel and got some water and washed the scummy, filthy feet of his disciples. But then probably the scariest part is when he says, and by this, the world will know that you're mine. Greatest testimony is not to me an evangelistic program. Oh, I can appreciate him, but I, again, to me the greatest testimony in the world, brothers and sisters, is a person who loves Jesus, who lives it out, in everything that he does. Remember, Jesus is Lord of my life totally, not just 95% of it, totally. People see Jesus in everything that I do. And may, by God's grace, they want to know the Savior because of that. Let's pray.